The Across Her Table podcast is constantly trying to tell stories that inspire. If you like what we are doing, could you please consider subscribing to us? We're a small indie podcast and small gestures of support from you can go a really long way for us. And while you're at it, do you mind giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts? When you recommend us to a friend, it helps us build stronger networks and reach more people. We can impact change simply by spreading the word. So share the joy. This is Mifra Abid from the Greater Toronto area and you're listening to Across Her Table. This is a podcast where I talk to remarkable Canadian women with immigrant roots and how they're contributing to the social narrative in Canada. Moving to Canada has been an adventure for me, and every day I meet inspiring women who have stories to tell, values to share, and so much to give to their communities. Let's get started. We're so used to scrolling endlessly on our social media feeds, but every once in a while, you come across something that makes you stop and take notice. Nada Khatib is one such example. She's an artist par excellence with a rapidly growing fan base. The proof of her talent lies in her wild popularity on social media. Her art process videos have gone viral, with some of them fetching more than a million views. Even though she was born and raised in Canada, she's still very grounded in her immigrant roots. Being a child of Syrian refugees herself, she's acutely conscious of the struggles that refugees face when they make the journey to a foreign land. She started her own company, Expressions by Nada, and seeks to grow it further. Welcome to another episode of Across the Table and welcome to the show, Nada. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really happy to talk to you today. How are you today? Good, good. I'm having a pretty nice day and it's beautiful outside. So jumping right into the questions, Nada, you know, I keep checking your Instagram uh, page and one of the first things I noticed were your time-lapse videos mm-hmm. and if I just tell you, they are absolutely mesmerizing. Oh, thank you so much. My, my daughter and I just can keep, keep watching them and we can do that forever. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I love hearing when people enjoy them. So thank you. You know, because I think one of the things that really attracts you or, you know, is inherently satisfying is to see a beautiful work of art taking shape in front of your eyes. Yeah, I love, I love the idea of watching something go from nothing to something. It's always fascinating for everybody, even myself. So Nada, let's talk Instagram numbers. You have close to 98,000 followers. I mean, 98,000. That is huge. <laughs> Thank you so much. So, do you ever expect your art to get this kind of appreciation? Um, to, in a kind of ideal world, I suppose that that was the goal. Uh, I never really expected it to reach this number and, you know, this amount of time. But I'm certainly very grateful. And it was it was kind of, you know, the goal, like I said, but um, I never really imagined this much. 
So it's mm-hmm. really been amazing and a great avenue for me and a great catalyst to reach my goals. So I'm really, really appreciative that I was able to um, create that kind of audience. Actually, talking about <clears throat> on the same note, uh, I see that one of some of your videos, not just one, some of your videos have received about 1 million views. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 1 million. <laughs> what do you make of that? That That is like always like a kind of, fun surprise and and to see the ones that go viral and reach so many people and it's it's really amazing to me um those those ones definitely make you know the big difference like if you're able to create something that does go viral um but i just mm-hmm. you know it blows my mind at the end of the day usually to be honest because it's not tangible or like we have I haven't seen it in physical sometimes it's just hard to grasp and i, I don't really think about it too much but at the end of the day, if I look at it, I'm like, oh, wow, that's, you know, a lot of people. And I just think that's the power of the internet and social media. And there are people out there who want to see people's work and who want to connect with others, but they just maybe haven't found you. Um, so it's just a reminder of like all the people out there that are like our potential friendships mm-hmm. or customers or, you know, just supporters. And it's really, really awesome to know that, that, that it's mm-hmm. such a powerful tool. So when did you decide that you should record your process and, you know, make videos of it? I decided very early on. So I kind of um, jumped right into my art career. Like it was a transition period between jobs. And so I just decided to pursue art. So I was jumping in um, like wholeheartedly. And um, from then on, that was about two years ago. And since then, I've been recording videos and uploading them. So I um, thought about it from the beginning consciously and I, you know, was making a plan as to how to engage people and create impact. And um, I thought just sharing the process and the behind the scenes was really important to that. And it's also been very crucial in gaining the audience that I have and engaging them as well as inspiring them. So through um, sharing my videos, I've been able to um, share my process with others and they can recreate my work, which is always so, so exciting to see. And I'm personally fascinated to see other artists process and so I can relate to that feeling for sure and the enjoyment of watching something go from nothing to something so um, I just have always enjoyed seeing those behind the scenes and it definitely helped to create a kind of community and the impact that I was going for yeah now about your art you know when you think of artists we generally associate them with a paintbrush but your tool of choice is the palette knife why so Yeah, a brush is definitely considered like the more conventional tool, I would say. My father was actually an artist um, when he was younger, and he he stopped painting when he was around 30 or in his late 20s, and he also used a paintbrush. It's kind of the classical um, medium, including also oil paint, I would say is more classical and, you know, the go-to in the past, but um, Mm -hmm. people more than ever, I think, are expanding their horizons in the arts, and there's a lot of different mediums. Like, I see the most creative, incredible things online, and, like, everyone's pushing those boundaries more than ever right now. Um, When I started painting about 12 years ago, I discovered palette knives pretty early on, and it was through research, researching artists that... um, inspired me which at the time there was no social media so it was a lot harder it was just um a google search and there was really only a few artists that really spoke to me and one in particular was leonid afromov and he's the one who when i looked more into his artwork i discovered palette knives and quickly from there i had only created maybe a few or a handful of paintings with brushes and pretty soon after i went out and got myself some palette knives and i just had a feeling and a calling to create textures so that has definitely been helpful in that 
And I also like to use other tools and discover other ways of creating cool textures. Like I'll also here and there use sponges or toothpicks or my fingers. But the knives definitely help me and they're a great tool and resource to help like achieve the look I'm going for. If I can segue to your roots, um, you are a first generation Canadian. That means you were born in Canada, but your parents were immigrants. So could you tell us more about your background? Yeah, for sure. So I was personally born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Um, each of my siblings were actually born in a different city around the world. I'm one of six children. So mm-hmm. um, my eldest sister is born in Syria, which is where um, my family's from. And then my brother in Jordan, one sister in Mecca, one sister in Medina, um, another sister in Calgary. And then I was born in Toronto. So wow, all over the place. Yeah. And so my family arrived to Canada as Syrian refugees fleeing persecution in the late 80s. And um, at the time, it was the current dictator's father who was in power. And very much as we're see- like we're seeing now, there was tons of oppression and a lack of freedom. And that's largely why they left. Um, so it was definitely a struggle. And, and they um, were really grateful to, to arrive in Canada. And it's such a beautiful country with a lot of, you know, benefits and we have our freedom here and everything like that. But they also quickly discovered a lot of new struggles as immigrants with language Mm -hmm. barriers, with cultural differences, and um, also careers. Like my mother was a medical doctor in Syria, and my father was an engineer. So, you know, of course, coming here, those are not valued if they're, you know, Syrian um, degrees. And so they were not able to practice. And it was a very difficult process that, you know, they couldn't necessarily afford with six kids and being new immigrants. So um, neither of them were able to practice in their exact fields. Um, my mother still persevered through and she put herself through naturopathic college, which is what mm-hmm. I'm from Calgary to Toronto. It was because my mom wanted to go to the Toronto Naturopathic College of Canada. And um, she actually graduated when she was pregnant with me, her sixth child. So wow, were those stories. Yeah. And my father just kind of trying to make ends meet and taking care of the kids more. So when I hear about that and their struggles, um, I have the utmost respect for immigrants who come to a new country and build a new life and face all of those struggles. But, you know, even despite all that, our family's always been so grateful for the freedoms and the you know privileges we have here in Canada. And um, my dream is to go back to Syria one day just to visit, because um, unfortunately, I've actually never been there. Oh, because of because of the political issues and the oppression, it's to the point where, you know, we couldn't even visit without fear of our lives. So I hope one day that I'll be able to go. That's my dream and see see the country that I'm, I'm from, that my parents came from. But at the same time, I do identify with being Canadian and I'm very grateful that we were able to come here. I know it's, you know, significantly impacted the trajectory of my life as a as a woman, as a, you know, um, in a minority. I'm sure that the story of your parents you know, resonates with a lot of current batch of Syrian refugees who are coming in lately. So, you know, when, when talking about the Syrian exodus to Canada, a lot of people assume that it's a fairly recent phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And yet your family has moved here almost about four decades ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so about 35 years ha- ago. How is the situation different from how it is now? So it's it's kind of funny because it's it's literally the the current dictator's father at the time and at you know 30 40 years ago there was the Hama massacre and there were people who were who were having to leave it wasn't um I think a mass migration of refugees as we see now 
but it's it's certainly a very similar story. One thing that makes it different and potentially a little bit harder back then was that there weren't so many, you know, Muslims and immigrants in Canada. You know, a lot of the people you see as immigrants here, you might hear, you know, the oldest family's been in Canada maybe 40 years or 50 years. But then, you know, back then there weren't a lot of Muslims or Arabs um, in Canada. You know, Mm -hmm. which is where my family lives now is not what it was um, back then, you know, and um, you didn't necessarily have those connections and people to really help you out. So in this kind of second wave of refugees we're seeing recently in the last, you know, five, 10 years due to the same issues, um, we have had some of our family who were living in Syria, you know, and they were um, they were there, but the war broke out and they also had to flee. So in coming to Canada, my family was able to kind of help them with that transition and they had a bit more support. And I think people are more aware now of those issues. It's still, of course, very difficult and traumatizing for so many people. And there are tons of people who don't get the opportunity to come to a country like Canada. But um, a lot mm-hmm. of the same issues in general with language barriers, you know, they have to come and learn um, the culture and the language and um, find employment. It's just a lot of the same challenges for sure. So in your growing up years, uh, were you conscious of having two distinct identities, like one Syrian and one Canadian, or was it more like a blend or seamless blend blend of sorts, you know? No, it was very much um, something I was aware of. So um, I I come from a pretty multicultural city, like from Toronto. I was born in North York, and then I moved to Mississauga. Both are very multicultural. And so a lot of people are used to saying, oh, where are you from? And, you know, they expect you're not even from Canada. And, like, you can tell, you know, I think that I don't look like I'm – um, you know, gen, you know, like generations from Canada. Yeah, I'm not like Native American or so. Um, I, I was very used to telling people that you know I'm Syrian, and I never really used to say I was Canadian because I was in Canada, so that was kind of you know obvious I was there. But Syrian, mm-hmm. Syrian was kind of like the way to you know answer that question, that question that we all get so much as immigrants, like where are you from? So that also became a little more tricky when um, I decided to wear my hijab as well. That made me even more visible um, as a minority, as a Muslim, as Arab. So um, that was a big part of my identity as well. And then one kind of interesting turn that changed my perspective was when I moved outside of Canada. And that's when I I kind of had to suddenly decide between those two identities. Was I Canadian or was I Syrian? Then I suddenly felt uncomfortable telling people I was Syrian because I had never even been there. And, you know, in Canada my whole life and when I moved outside of Canada like that's where I had been before so it was when I moved to Bahrain in 2016 I believe that's when I um, started to kind of rethink my identity and um, it was kind of like a, a weird struggle again of like am I Canadian or am I Syrian because before that I, I would just tell people I'm my, my family's from Syria I'm, I'm Syrian because you know everyone wonders where where each other are from I, I just can't wrap myself around I know that my head around that because it's so funny that you had to be out of Canada to identify yourself as primarily as Canadian. Exactly. So, so um, yeah. coming back to your profession a bit, you know, and a little bit of, your, you know, something to do with your background. I come from a Desi background and I don't know if you're aware of this, but Desi parents, especially immigrant ones, they tend to have very rigid career expectations of their you know children. So, it's usually a doctor or engineer, architect, 
or anything that brings um, job security really early on. So now, considering all the struggles that your family went through, was it any different when you know you chose to be an artist? So I think Arab culture traditionally is, is quite similar. Um, my parents t- definitely tell us stories about how when they were growing up or you know going into high school, and you're going to decide like your career and your major. It was pretty much three options, doctor, lawyer, engineer. And so my mom went with doctor, my dad went with engineer, their siblings chose basically one of, <laughs> you know, categories. And it just was what it was for whatever reason. I think um, it's, it is a privilege to be able to think outside of that and to pursue your passion and all these terms that we hear recently. Um, growing up, my parents did not, you know, restrict us to those professions. Of course, like any other parent, they did want us to have security and a good job. But they always allowed us, you know, the freedom to to choose. However, it wasn't necessarily encouraged or um, we weren't necessarily like motivated to think outside the box or, um, you know, choose something a little bit more risky or unconventional. So for me, for the arts are definitely, you know, traditionally not considered um, a professional career there's the starving artist kind of like stigma or stereotype. And I was mentioning earlier that my father was an artist, but I, I don't think it ever crossed his mind to pursue it professionally. And there were a lot more barriers at the time. Like, you know, like as I was mentioning earlier, social media has changed the art world for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but even when I decided to pursue my art career two years ago, there was some, you know, hesitation and some confusion in, within my family, not because, you know, they didn't love or want to support me, but I think there was just really a lack of understanding of, of the path forward and like doing something that was really like outside the box and um, maybe a little bit even risky and unknown. Mm-hmm. But that never personally bothered me. I I find a lot of excitement in that and I find so much gratification and purpose in doing what I love. So I have no regrets and I, um, I've been excited to, you know, share the journey with them and, and, you know, they've, they've come to realize that this can be a very respectable professional career. And, um, it's, it's kind of exciting to change people's point of views, I think. So I didn't necessarily mind taking on that challenge, even though it was very difficult. When you um, see youngsters, you know, when you talk to youngsters who are looking at art as a full-time profession, what do you say to them? Do you think it is a career that, you know, can sustain them or do they have to also look at a backup plan? What advice do you give to young artists out there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say more than a traditional career, the range of outcomes is very big. So, you know, the starving artists, I'm sure, still exists, but all there's the range from that all the way to self-made millionaires who are artists and just world-renowned, you know, extremely successful artists. So the range is really big, which means there is a risk, you know, maybe more than if you just get a degree and get a job. Mm-hmm. But that also means that the potential of reward and growth and, you know, your ability to reach your potential and grow as much as you want is limitless. And for me, that's so exciting. But the caveat to that is that you you have to kind of be self-driven and self-motivated. And if you're going to get there, it's on your own, you know, efforts and time. And, um, you know, there's a lot of struggles to persevere through. And I would I tell them that the beginning is, is really hard. Like it's really challenging to push through. And it does take a lot of time to build it up um, in terms of building up your art career. But if you look at it like... Um, going to, you know, becoming a doctor, you go, you get your undergrad and then you go to med school total eight years and then plus, you know, residencies and all that. Mm -hmm. 
you were to, you know, dedicate the same amount of time to your craft as much as, you know, somebody in med school would, I believe the outcome, you know, could be, could be similar and it could be very positive. The thing is people, people are kind of used to domestication and like, um, structures within education that are, are built to kind of, you know, motivate us. And like, they, they somewhat, you know, tell us what to do and, and figure out, you know, the directions that we're supposed to be going in. But as a kind of self-taught self-employed artist, it's up to you to figure those things out. It's very well possible, (laughs) but that that piece of like needing to be self-motivated and self-directed and persevering um, through all the challenges is, is kind of the key. And I, I tell them also that, um, believing in yourself is really the the main thing that matters. It's not a small thing. It's not an easy thing. And it's not something you can fake. You know it, you know, if you believe in yourself or not. But if you have that fire and you, you have that vision and you like are are willing to dedicate the time that it takes to, to build an art career and your, your craft and your skill, you know, there's more than enough opportunities and there's an enormous amount of room for growth. I like the analogy that you made there is that eight years of med school as opposed to eight years, you know, working on your craft and you more or less will, you know, have similar outcomes. But most people don't see that, you know, they see um, because a lot of people don't decide early on that they want to become an artist, you know. That's very true. Yeah. And so sometimes it can it can come later and then, you know, you feel like you should see progress so fast. But the truth is, it's it's such a skill that, um, you know, like, like anything else that you dedicate your time to, it needs that time and every, you know, piece you create and every experience and all of that, it builds on itself. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you're talented or, you know, this or that, but I I see it a lot more as a self-taught artist. I see it a lot more as a skill. Like it's something that, you know, you have to work at all the time and be consistently creating in order to see your growth, but you inevitably will, I believe. So one last question, Nada. Um, in a previous interview, you had mentioned that the flip side of going independent as an artist is the isolation that comes with it. So how much worse is it with this COVID-19 lockdown? So I, I faced a lot of issues with isolation in the beginning, especially. Um, I think part of it was because I moved to a new city. My husband was going to work full time outside the house. And I was just a budding artist who, you know, again, was not having um, that kind of feedback and response that I fortunately have now. So um, that was a really challenging time. And the way I worked around it was um, teaching outside of the house as well as um, volunteering and things like that. But now, I don't know, for some reason during, you know, the pandemic and, and, and staying home, I haven't I haven't faced those issues at all. I'm very thankful for that. But um, I've just kind of been really busy. It's been a good time for me to be able to focus on my business as opposed to, you know, all the other things I was doing. So I've just been embracing it. And, you know, I may not like see people face to face on a daily basis, but I talk to dozens of people every single day on my on my social media. And I have genuine, you know, real relationships with people online, which is kind of a strange thing. But I think a lot of us feel that now and are getting more used to that. Like I have, you know, virtual friends and and um, artist friends who I've never met in person, but they are, you know, they are definitely people who keep me going and motivate me and, um, kind of help me feel less isolated for sure. Hmm, that is that is so true, actually. So here's to more virtual collaborations, virtual friends, and online platforms. <laughs> so anyways, thank you so much, Nada. This has been really great. Thank you. I'm so happy to have done it, and I, I can't wait to share it with everybody. 
If you like this episode, please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. We would also love to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or just email us at feedback at acrossatable.com.